Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see everyone with us once again. And you know, it really wouldn't be July if I didn't mention that we're halfway to Christmas. And hopefully, even just thinking of Christmas kind of brings a cooler feeling to your bones that in the warmth of this morning, just think about Christmas time and winter and the fact that. Some people get snow, not us, but some people get snow, and maybe that'll help cool you down a little bit. But seriously, when I think about Christmas time, one of my favorite things about Christmas is the story, A Christmas Carol. And it's many incarnations that that have taken place of Christmas Carol over the generations. Uh, But just the amazing storytelling that that Charles Dickens contained within that story. And I didn't realize this until I was was looking it up this week, but Christmas Carol was actually written in 1843. 1843! And yet it's still a beloved story that is past... uh, You get get the weird like 3D animated version with Jim Carrey voicing Ebenezer Scrooge and things like that, but just the timeless tale that Charles Dickens created. But I think possibly the most tragic character in all of that story is the character of Jacob Marley. For those of you that might not remember or need a quick refresher, Jacob Marley was Ebenezer Scrooge's business partner who had died before the story takes place. Uh, And he's actually the first ghost to appear to Scrooge warning of the three ghosts that will come later in, the, in that night. But Jacob Marley comes to Scrooge and he's bound in chains. And in fact, uh, it, the, the original story says he's bound with chains and cash boxes and keys and padlocks and ledgers and deeds and heavy purses wrought in steel. That he's bound uh, for all of eternity and the things that display his greed that he'd lived in while he was still alive. And he's condemned to walk for eternity in the afterlife, bound by his greed. And he's weighed down by his guilt and the weight of his greed that he lived in. And he's helping Scrooge and trying to redeem his one-time friend. And yet forever condemned himself to walk the afterlife and doomed, as the text says, to incessant torture of remorse. He's doomed to ever feel the weight and pain of his guilt and greed without any hope of redemption or restoration. Jacob Marley is possibly one of the the most tragic characters in storytelling and and English literature itself. But this fictional character that was written and described in 1843 is a perfect description of the weight and guilt that you and I often, so often bear. The things that you've said in the past, the things that you've done, the way that you treated certain people, are belittled others. Or maybe it's the things that you left unsaid. 
the things that you know that you should have done and never did. And those things weigh on you like Jacob Marley's chains. This is the entry point of Psalm 130. Burdened by weight of guilt. The psalmist is weighed by the guilt of his own sin. And he's crying out from the depths. And yet the psalm moves from the depth of despair toward assurance and peace. And as the psalms are meant to be a songbook for God's people to declare the goodness of who God is, I would say that the psalmist is arguing that every person can trust in the mercy of God. Instead of wearing your chains of guilt like Jacob Marley, dragging around the the weight of the guilt of your own sin, the psalmist is saying, bring your guilt and exchange it for peace. And we see that in three ways. First, in verses 1-3, through by looking at the weight of guilt. The heaviness, the weight of guilt itself. Secondly, in verses 4-6, through looking at the weight for hope. Not weight as in heaviness, but weight as in time. So the weight of guilt, the weight for hope. And lastly, in verses 7-8, through looking at the way to redemption. Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we can come together this morning. God, we confess that we come to You afraid to be honest about the guilt that we carry, feeling like it is our burden to bear. God, in this time, I pray that You would meet us where we are, that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place, that You would take these chains of guilt that we're wearing, that You would take our chains and give us Your freedom, the assurance of Your hope. Meet with us now in this place. Speak through me and proclaim Your mercy. We pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Now the first thing that you see looking at Psalm 130 is it's actually described as a song of ascents. And so there's a few different theories on what it means. Uh, There's a a section of the Psalms uh, that are described as the songs of ascents. Um, But the most popular theory is that there were several pilgrimages for God's people to to head to Jerusalem to, to worship in the temple. And that the Song of Ascents, Jerusalem was actually up on a hill. And so as the people were arriving to Jerusalem, that they would be singing these psalms that were reminded them uh, uh, of their sin, but the goodness of God that is more powerful than their sin. And so as they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, that God's people would sing these psalms to remind themselves of God's mercy and His character and His goodness. That's the most prevalent theory of of what these Song of Ascents are. And this psalm, 
Psalm 130, the psalmist is lamenting his own sin right from the beginning by looking at the weight of guilt. And one of the things that I love about the psalms is that they, they're honest about struggle. They don't beat around the bush. They, uh, so many times, even today, even the people that you're close with in your own life, someone comes up to you and says, oh, how are you doing today? And instead of actually being honest about your heart and your struggles and your fears and your anxieties, we just so often give the, the, the package answer as, oh, I'm, I'm fine, everything's good. Everything's all right. And even when you're, you're, you're deeply pressed, you might get to that honest place of admitting your struggles and your fears. But the Psalms, don't, they don't take that route. They don't, they don't hide their struggles and their frustrations. The Psalms are honest about the struggles of the heart. And so the psalmist opens up the psalm by saying, out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. The psalmist finds himself in a pit of despair, that there is a lack of hope. He feels that his situation is so hopeless that he describes himself in the depths. It reminds me of Psalm 32, which is a, 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 written as a psalm of David, that David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That In Psalm 32, that David was so in despair over his sin that he felt like his very bones were aching with, with weight and guilt. And it's this kind of attitude that the psalmist is saying, I am in the depths. And out of these depths, I am crying to You, O Yahweh. That even in the depths, he's remembering the covenant God of Israel that has made Himself known to His people. And the psalmist says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Saying, You are the covenant God of Israel. You are the One who spoke creation into existence. You were the one who made yourself known to your people. God, please hear me cry. He's appealing to a relationship of this covenant God between this covenant God and His people. He's appealing to that relationship. And in in light of that relationship, He's crying out, God, please step in. Intervene. Meet me in my despair. Why is he crying out? If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The past few weeks we've seen psalms that have been written out of places of distress where the psalmist has literally been under attack by physical enemies that the psalmist, uh, most often David, has been in fear for his very life. But this is different. This is not crying out of concern for for physical safety. This this is crying out under the weight, under the crushing guilt of sin. Like Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol, the psalmist is crying out under the weight of guilt dragging him in bondage. 
We live in a sinful, broken world. We live in a world where there are good things that have been tainted by sin. Good things that, care, that, that are marred by the destruction of sin. And because of that, we are sinful people wrestling with guilt. Wrestling with the sins of our own hearts and our minds. And the easiest way to cope with guilt is to justify it. Instead of being honest and admitting struggle, but to say, it's not as bad as it sounds. We try to excuse sin by taking away the burden of sin. And instead of calling it a lie, we call it a half-truth. Instead of saying that someone has committed adultery, we say that they've had an affair, that they were unfaithful, that they made a mistake. Instead of saying that someone has gone through divorce, we say, well, they just weren't compatible with one another. This one's probably going to this one is, is, is touchy in, in today's society and culture today. But instead of saying, instead of calling it murder, we say that it's a medical procedure. We say that we call abortion a woman's right. Because at that point, if you call it a right, who's going to argue against someone's right to decide? And I know that there are nuances and much more deeper discussions and arguments within that, but we try to justify sin by renaming it, rebranding it, and saying that it's not as bad as it sounds. But the problem is that justifying sin does not remove the guilt of sin. They're the same chains, but they're just made more palatable. They're dressed up nice. They're designer chains they're still weighed with the guilt of sin, but we try to excuse them and justify them and say that it's not as bad as it may appear. And the psalmist looks at his own sin. He says, God, if you're keeping track of sin, who can stand? And Scripture answers that by saying, no one. In Romans 3.23, Paul reminds the church, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned. Not the people that sin really bad, they fell short, but you know these smaller sins, you can squeak by. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person in all of creation has been born under the weight and the penalty of sin. And the psalmist stands before the covenant God of creation of Israel. And he's confronted with guilt and he finds himself in the depths of despair. 
And so today, we look at this psalm, and I have to ask, have you examined your own guilt? Are you honest with your own guilt? Do you try to dress it up and justify it and say, well, it's not so bad. I only do this once every now and then. Or, well, I'm not as bad as this person over there. Have you taken stock of the weight of guilt that is dragging you down? Have you ever found yourself feeling like you were in the depths of despair crying out to God to meet you under the weight of your own sin? If so, I encourage you to look and see where the psalmist goes next. Not staying in the depths of his despair, but looking at the weight for hope. Picking up in verse 4, but with you. He's in the depths of despair, weighed down by the crushing weight of sin, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God who makes Himself known, not just any other God, not any of the pagan gods, the covenant God of Israel who has established Himself in relationship with His people, with you, there is forgiveness. He comes burdened by the weight of His sin, but with God there is forgiveness. And it leads to fear. Not fear terror. Not such a crippling fear that he, he cannot even begin to approach this holy God, but a fear of awe and respect. When we were in Hendersonville, uh, we, we were in the woods. We didn't have a fire pit just because there were trees and every brush all around us, it, was, it would have not have been safe for us to have a fire pit. But we did have a fireplace. And so whenever it would start getting cool outside, we would light up a fire and you know, pull out, uh, we, you know, you pull out the coat hangers and finally I invested in some actual marshmallow roasters. But we would roast marshmallows over the fire in the fireplace. And having small children, inevitably some child would try to get too close to the fire and and even try to touch the fire itself. And as a parent, you you do your job, you keep the child safe, and we're trying to teach our children to fear the fire. Not fear as in, don't be so afraid of the fire that you don't even go near it, but fear the fire in awe and respect of its power. That this same fire that has the power to create warmth and roast delicious marshmallows. This same fire has the power to destroy and to harm. And that in order to properly take care of yourself, you treat the fire with fear and respect. And in a much grander scale, the psalmist is saying you, the, the forgiveness of God leads God's people to fear. Not a crippling terror, but respect and awe of the power of this God who forgives. And this forgiveness and fear leads the psalmist to verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. 
and in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In Deuteronomy, towards the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, Moses is about to die. He's lived a long life and he's led God's people for a long time. And he knows that his end is coming soon. And he's passing over the reins of leadership to Joshua. But before he dies, he reminds God's people of the promise of hope. The hope of God's presence. And Moses says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, meaning the surrounding nations. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Moses knows that his end is coming soon. But he's reminding God's people that they have seen the mercy of God, that they've been delivered from Egypt and promised the promised land. They've been led through the wilderness. And with Yahweh, that there is forgiveness. And so, they waited. Sometimes not so well. But they waited. Trusting and the promises of God, trusting His presence that He promised that He would be with them. And their hope was founded in the truth that God was with them and He would never leave them or forsake them. And in that same attitude, the psalmist waits for the Lord. He's not waiting for escape He's not waiting for a way out of the depths. He's waiting for God to show up and meet Him where He is. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The night guard that would stand watch over the gates to the city knowing that the dawn would soon be here. That shortly in a few short hours the sun would rise and the darkness would would flee. And the night watchmen would trust that with the light came protection. The watchmen waiting for the morning, knowing that the light was coming. The psalmist says, more than those watchmen would wait for the dawn, my soul waits for the Lord. And so God's people waited and waited for over 400 years. God's people waited until a baby is born, God in the flesh, in Bethlehem. And this baby grows and lives a sinless life not burdened by the weight of guilt. And this baby who has become a man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, takes the weight 
of your sin and your guilt upon Himself and carries it to the cross. He takes your sin and your guilt and your shame and it is nailed to the cross and dies with Him on the cross. And as He rises again three days later in victory over sin and death, He brings forgiveness and hope and redemption. And so the author of Hebrews looks at the life and the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus and applies the same promise that Moses gave to God's people and says that He will not leave you nor forsake you. He takes the promise of Moses regarding the covenant God of Israel and says that this is met and fulfilled and applied to Jesus Christ. And so God's people can wait and endure not because of your own strength, not because of your own effort, but trusting in the hope of a God who promises His presence. You can wait because the God who promises to never leave, abandon, or forsake you will arrive. And have you encountered this God? The God who forgives. Have you encountered the God whose forgiveness leaves people in awe of His glory? That He is the one who gives endurance to wait, not trusting in your own strength, but trusting and hoping in His power and His might. When the weight of your guilt drives you to look at the wait for hope, the psalmist reminds God's people to look at the way to redemption. In verse 7, he's crying out to Israel itself, crying out to the nation, crying out to God's people, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love. There's that hesed love that we keep seeing week in and week out the Hesed love, the covenant faithfulness of a God who does not abandon His people. For with Him there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. With this God who does not relent, does not give up on His people, with Him is plentiful redemption. For those of you that are are kind of grammar nerds, if you get into that kind of thing, in the original Hebrew, the verb tense here, it's a a hiffle if you really care, but it is a causative action. Meaning that the Lord causes this to happen. And the word can literally be translated as increasingly abundant. Not just plentiful, but increasingly abundant. And so this phrase could actually be translated, and with Him, redemption is increasingly abundant. And I don't know if you've ever felt the crushing weight of guilt and sin, 
but it creates a downward spiral of guilt and shame. That if you trust in your own strength and your own ability, oftentimes when you look at your own sin and your own struggle, that the guilt and shame that comes with your sin and you try to handle it on your own, and then there's the guilt and, and shame of trying to of resting in your own strength and trusting in your own ability, and it becomes a, an exponential increase of guilt upon guilt and shame upon shame. That sin begets sin. And the heart spirals into despair, which is where the psalmist found himself at the beginning. But with Christ, God in the flesh, there's mercy and forgiveness. And His sacrifice and resurrection that there is redemption that is increasingly abundant. The the Hesed love, the covenant faithfulness of God is found in His increasingly abundant redemption. That it's not just, well, you get a few chances, but if you mess up, three strikes, you're out. But His redemption is increasingly abundant and it's the only thing large enough to destroy and eliminate and wipe out the downward spiral of guilt and shame that comes from sin. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The very God who gave the law and judges all looks upon the sacrifice of Christ. And for those who trust in Christ's sacrifice, God says, you are not condemned. Those chains are gone. You've been set free. And as the psalmist says, He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This God of unrelenting love. This God of covenant faithfulness. This God whose redemption is increasingly abundant will redeem His people. And so this morning, are you carrying your guilt with you? Like Jacob Marley, are you weighed down by the chains of your sin and guilt dragging through the day? Or are you trying to justify your sin and, and, re- and relieve that guilt yourself by saying it's not as bad as it could be? Or will you lay your guilt at the foot of the cross? Will you hope and the promise of redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Which will you choose? Let us pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for, for Your love for us. God, we thank You that in Your faithfulness, in Your steadfast love, that You have not abandoned Your people. God, we thank You that Your love is not dependent on how good we are, how much we can achieve. Your love is not dependent on us saying or doing the right thing. God, Your love is founded and rooted and glorified in the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that we would place all of our hope and our trust in Him. That we would rest in His work. God, let us bring the chains of guilt over our sin and lay them down at the foot of the cross. Let us find our hope in the empty tomb. And trust and the redemption of Jesus Christ. God, as we leave here today, let us leave with joy that You are a God that does not leave or forsake or abandon Your people. Go with us now, wherever we go, to home, to school, to work, everywhere we go. God, go with us. And let us rest in Your promise of Your hope and your redemption. And we pray all of this in the victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.